In Hartford, Connecticut, there's a street called Scarborough Street. The neighborhood has a very old money feel. Lots of brick, mature landscaping, square neocolonial homes. There's a certain sameness to the architecture. That is, until you pass by 130 Scarborough Street. And suddenly, this house pops up. It is so unlike anything nearby. It's so unlike anything around it. You can't miss it. This outlier house, set far back from the street, looks like an Italian palace. Well, kind of. It's blue-gray. It has tall, elegant white columns all across the front. It's beautiful. But get a little closer, and you'll notice some odd things about this house. Like those elegant columns? They're not actually load-bearing or even cylindrical. They're not really columns at all. Up close, they're 2D. Just big, flat lengths of painted wood stuck directly to the front of the house. It is a facade. It's an incredible, playful folly, almost. It is a playful folly. But it's also a real house that its larger-than-life creator actually lived in. And he once said, The house is just like me. All facade. I'm Amanda McGowan, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, we're taking you to an architectural oddity in Hartford, Connecticut, which is also a perfect reflection of the fascinating man who created it. That's after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. It's a February evening in 1936, and the Wadsworth Museum in Hartford is having a ball. A paper ball. Every decoration and every costume is made of paper. People are dressed as paper horses, paper elephants, even famous works of art from the museum. Firemen stand off to the side, misting all of the costumes with fire retardant, ready to throw buckets of water on anyone who lights a cigarette. In the center of all of this is the ringleader in a bright red circus jacket holding a whip. This is Chick Austin. He's the director of the festivities and of the museum. By his side is his glamorous wife, Helen, draped in paper flowers. The party rages all night long. 
when the last guests finally stumble out around six in the morning. Along the marble floor, there's a bright red streak because the dye has run from the ringleader's jacket. Our ringleader, Chick Austin, had first come to Hartford about 10 years before, at the end of the 1920s. At the time, he was just 26 years old and fresh off of a prestigious museum gig at Harvard. He arrived to be director of the oldest public art museum in the United States. This is Matthew Hargraves. He is the current director of that museum, the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. His strength was really in American art and the kind of taste of New England collectors of that kind of Gilded Age. Think landscape paintings, pastel sunsets, calm riverside scenes. Nothing wrong with that. But even by the 1930s, it's a little bit old-fashioned. It suits the culture of Hartford. Buttoned up, not particularly daring. But Chick Austin, to quote Miley Cyrus, he came onto this scene like a wrecking ball. Chick is interested in the modern, the new, the cutting edge. We were the first museum to buy a, a Mondrian painting, the first to buy a Dali, uh, the first to do an exhibition of the work of uh, Pablo Picasso. That was in 1934. Chick Austin is also a character. He's got movie star good looks, is always vrooming around town in the latest, greatest sports car, and smokes a carton of cigarettes a day. He's a member of the International Guild of Magicians. He's a showman, even in the way he runs the museum. The museum was at the heart of of social life, and it was a place not just to see things, but also to be seen. And I think Chick really understood that. There was a party here almost every other week. Uh, And these weren't just uh, small-scale affairs. These were grand events. Between bold exhibitions and a bump in social calendar, Chick takes the small regional museum and turns it into a major hub of culture. And with every great shindig, everyone knows that the real party is the after party, because those take place at Chick Austin's fabulous house. Chick and Helen had gone to Italy on their honeymoon, and while they were there, they fell in love with the villa that they saw. In 1930, they set out to recreate this villa in Hartford. Well, from the outside, at least. The couple hired an architect, who Chick later fired halfway through. And after one year and about $1 million adjusted for inflation, their dream house was born. The house is 86 feet wide, with that ornate blue-gray columned front. But it's only 18 feet deep or the depth of just one room. So from the outside, it looks like a giant mansion, but thanks to its shallow size, it actually has roughly the same square footage as the neighboring homes. Chick Austin loved theater, he loved stage. The house is a great piece of kind of set dressing. The inside of the house was just as unusual. The bottom floor was where all the parties happened. It's Baroque, over the top, with paintings of cherubs and ocean scenes everywhere. But not everything is as it seems. As you walk around the house and there are these vistas through things where you think you're getting a clear view and then you realize, no, that's a mirror. And I've been looking at the reflection. You realize, ah, look at all this marble work. No, 
It's all wood that's been painted to look like marble. It's not quite what it appears to be. But the top floor feels almost like walking into a completely different house. It's sleek and Bauhaus, as modern as you could get at the time, with a totally different palette of muted colors, blacks and whites. This was the living area for Chick, Helen, and their two children. Think bedrooms and bathrooms. For people to walk through that house, to see that for the first time, must have been mind-blowing at the time. And it still has that effect today, uh, you know, almost 100 years later. The house became one more stage set for Chick. All of the big celebrities of the art world paraded through. Salvador Dali, Gertrude Stein, Alexander Calder. I imagine the martinis being ice cold and flowing freely. But not everybody loved the Austin's new house. There was a, a certain amount of, I think, dismay and, and disgust because it was so vulgar, if you like, in wanting to draw attention to itself. It wasn't in any way self-effacing. And allegedly, you know, I think a member of the board at the time was supposed to have pulled up outside and just been absolutely horrified. Some museum trustees took to calling it the pasteboard palace. A lawyer who lived across the street said it was an excrescence. I had to look that one up. It means an abnormal outgrowth. Notice some of this criticism came from higher-ups at the museum. Well, by the late 1930s and into the 1940s, Chick's grand lifestyle had started to rub some of the museum's top brass the wrong way. So Chick definitely was uh, was extravagant. I think uh, he would not have uh, succeeded in the incredible things he accomplished if there wasn't inherently in him this extravagance. As a consequence, though, that didn't always mean prudent uh, allocation or, or use of resources or budget. Chick's reality didn't always match what he presented to the outside world. First, there were money troubles. Chick had a habit of acquiring lots of fabulous works of art that he didn't exactly have the permission of the board to buy. He was also spending more and more money on theater productions at the museum, often casting himself in the lead role. And of course, there were those pricey parties like the paper ball. In his personal life, too, despite all of the flashy cars and the lavish lifestyle. His wife was the one who came to the marriage with the money. She was from the Goodwin family, a very sort of old, established Harford family. And he had an allowance from his wife, but he burned through that, you know, on, on the second day of each month. And she had to keep remonstrating with him on, you know, honestly, we, we can't afford this. His love life, too, had some complications. While married to Helen, he also had relationships with men, some that Helen knew about and others she didn't. This aspect of his private life would have been undoubtedly controversial at that time. Perhaps it was uh, something people were willing to turn a blind eye to, but as it became more public and less discreet, let's put it that way, at that moment, people were simply unwilling to accept that, uh, especially in a conservative place like Connecticut. In 1943, Chick staged and starred in a play called Tis a Pity She's a Whore, which was written in the 1600s and was about an incestuous brother and sister. Audiences in Hartford hated it. 
they actually wouldn't even print the name of it in the newspaper. What's more, the country was now at war. The city of Hartford and the museum board lost their patience with Chick's extravagances. He and the museum parted ways in 1944. Chick went on to lead a fascinating second life. He was recruited down to Florida to take over this crumbling art-filled mansion that was owned by the Ringling family, the founders of the Ringling Brothers Circus, which was pretty fitting for the guy who dressed up as the ringleader back at the paper ball. Chick turned it into an art museum and created the country's first circus museum. For 10 years, he lived in Florida with a male lover, still writing to Helen and the kids and visiting frequently. But when he was in his 50s, Chick started having debilitating pain in his lower back. Around Christmas of 1956, he returned to Hartford. A few months later, in March of 1957, Chick died of lung cancer that had spread to his spine. Today, even 70 years after Chick Austin left the Wadsworth, director Matthew Hargrave says that his fingerprints are still all over the museum, both in the astonishing pieces that Chick added to its collection and in the way he seamlessly and very playfully blended the old with the new. We are totally in his debt. If you think about it as like a wine cellar where somebody has laid down vintages at the time that you're still drawing on today. Uh, there are certain things that he laid down at the time that we've, we haven't even opened yet. And Chick's legacy is also outside the museum's walls, in what the Wadsworth now affectionately refers to as the largest object in its collection, Chick Austin's house. Matthew says this unusual structure is a perfect reflection of its creator. Yes, there's the element of the facade, and of things not quite being as they appear. But there's also something else. It is a magical house. It is a beautiful house. It is a house you just want to, you know, you see it, you're like, what is that? I'm intrigued by it. And you want to know what's behind the door, what's in those windows. You want to be close to it. And I think he was that kind of personality, the magic of it. It is Rachel Costin. Austin's house has been closed to visitors during COVID because it's tough to social distance inside the house. But the Wadsworth is keeping a waiting list for when they reopen if you want to add your name. I will certainly be adding mine. Special thanks to Matthew Hargraves for telling me the story of the Chick Austin house. And I also want to give a shout out to a fantastic biography of Chick called Magician of the Modern. It's by Eugene Gaddis. Check it out if you want to learn more about this totally fascinating guy. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes... Dylan Therese. Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder-Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Manolo Morales. Baudelaire Seuss. Gabby Gladney. Gianna Palmer. Tracy Samuelson. John Delore. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by... Luce Fleming. 
if you would like to learn more, go to atlasobscura.com. There is a link in our episode description. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. And I'm Amanda McGowan, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Now playing in Los Angeles. Exquisite food and drink, world-class art everywhere, spectacular sports, and dazzling Hollywood attractions. L.A. offers the full variety of food scene, from game-changing taco trucks to 35 Michelin stars. And did you know that Los Angeles has more museums and theaters than New York? It is indeed scandalous, but also unfortunately true. So get your fix in music, film, comedy, or world-class museums in L.A. Plus, you can get a behind-the-scenes movie magic with a world-famous studio tour. That is something that should be on everybody's bucket list. Start here with discoverla.com.